Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Thank you, God, for today. Thank you that um, this is a day that you have created, God, that you've given to us and it's a gift to us. I pray that you'd help us to be mindful of your presence, um, of your grace, God, and your love for us this morning, and that you would give us ears to hear your heart um, through whatever it is that I say, that it would be your heart that's communicated, God. Amen. Amen. So uh, it's the last Sunday before we get into December, which is just going to be Christmas, Christmas, Christmas. Um, <clears throat> it's already Christmas in a lot of places, I know, especially Starbucks, but um, we're, we're going to finish off with one last um, sermon on contemplation. Um, so we've been talking a lot about prayer over the last few months, and in particular the last few weeks, uh, contemplation specifically, and silence, and there's been some practical sessions and some kind of theory aspects of that. Um, but I think we, we all know and have probably all agree that prayer is a central part of Christian life. Um, but perhaps for a lot of us with charismatic backgrounds, um, kind of traditional prayer, like you know kneeling at the side of your bed with your hands clasped, that sort of thing, um, or liturgical prayer or the Lord's Prayer, um, have been kind of maligned in our past. Um, we kind of have a perhaps a slightly negative view of it, but hopefully we've started to gather a bit more of a positive view of it over the last uh, few weeks, because we've been trying to recapture, yeah. sort of breathe new life into those forms of prayer. Um, so we've heard about Lord's Prayer, liturgical prayer, creeds, um, and I think it was Steve that used the phrase, like the path well trodden, yeah. of that kind of like, stuff that's gone before us, this kind of rich history, um, that it's a shame to just kind of do away with it and turn away from it. Um, and contemplation is very much part of that. So contemplation uh, in other cultures, uh, it can be called meditation. Um, it's, actually, it's the same thing. Um, but we perhaps don't like the word meditation because it has connotations of other religions. Um, but it, it, it's a, it's a, it, at its heart, it is, it is exactly the same thing. It's, it's quietness, it's silence, it's mindfulness. Mindfulness is becoming quite fashionable in our culture at the moment. Um, but we've been trying to look at how it, how it looks in, in, in the Christian world and it actually does have a really rich history in Christianity going right back to the 4th century with um, a group known as the Desert Fathers so I don't know if you've heard of them um, but they effectively so the early Christian history was filled with persecution for the first sort of four centuries and um, at the end of the third beginning of the fourth century had this transition from intense persecution to Emperor Constantine taking over the Roman Empire and suddenly Christianity became state religion and no longer was anyone persecuted but actually it was a really different form of um, change in Christianity from fear underground church to being the thing that was lauded by the state that was put forward by the state but it had a lot of negative attributes because of that because it became the system of power rather than the system of the weak and the oppressed in society um and so the desert fathers were a group who in that context so they actually started towards the end of the persecution but flourished um during 
Constantine's, Constantine's reign, they removed themselves from society because they didn't want their faith to be kind of infected by statehood. Um, they wanted to preserve something of its purity and its essence. And they were the group that started contemplation, basically. Um, and it's, it's been continued since then in the Orthodox Church in particular. Um, it's still very much part of their Christian practice. Um, and they, they draw that lineage all the way from the Desert Fathers, who were some of the earliest Christians. Um, and they have this thing called the Jesus Prayer, which you may have heard of. A really, really short prayer. It just says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's it. And the, there's kind of variations on that, but it is literally that short. And um, they, part of their practice is to effectively just repeat that prayer um, constantly throughout the day, which sounds a little bit mind-numbing. But the idea is that that is kind of, that becomes this sort of like undergirding rhythm or... Um, I don't know, something that's just kind of like cycling through their spirit throughout the day, throughout their daily life, that they're always mindful of that connection between them and Jesus Christ, um, that that's their kind of foundation for day-to-day life. Now, it's easy, well, it's not easy, but it's probably easier to do that if you're in a monastery and all you've got to do every day is walk around in robes and be silent, and I'm assuming that that's what they do. I'm sure they do more than that, but... um, it's a bit different in modern life. There's a lot of things that come to try and distract us. Um, so I just want to say a little bit about the Jesus prayer before I carry on, because um, there's a, the, the end of that prayer, so Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, is something that when I first heard this prayer, I didn't like, because I've always, or not always, but for a long time, I've believed that I don't want to identify as being a sinner. Um, because our contemporary theology or teaching or charismatic teaching tells us that we're not supposed to identify as being a sinner we're saved, we're righteous uh, we're the righteousness of God Um, and I don't disagree with any of that and for that reason I do find it or have found it problematic but I've tried to come to a place of understanding, you know, these early Christians chose that prayer for a reason, what was their what was their understanding of God and their connection with God so I don't want to just throw it out like we do with like it can be so easy to do with many things um, so uh, I thought about it for a bit and um, <laughs> I, th- I think the reason I've got a problem with identifying as a sinner um, comes from or is at least connected to what I consider to be now a faulty atonement theology now atonement theology um, is a term you may or may not be familiar with it's essentially what we believe about why Jesus died on the cross so what was his purpose of doing that we all believe that he died on the cross um, but the scriptures are perhaps less clear on the purpose of doing that and what it achieved and what was his motivation in doing it and so um, our kind of Western Protestant, very broadly Protestant, all of the Protestant groups of churches broadly align with what's called penal substitutionary atonement. Um, another big phrase. Write that down and look at it when you get home because I'm really not going to go into depth on it and I don't know enough about it to go into depth on it. Um, but you're welcome to look it up. But in, in brief, what it says is that um, God was angry with 
humanity with sin and God needed a sacrifice <coughs> to appease that anger Jesus became that sacrifice once and for all and God's wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross so you, you, know, you could summarise that with effectively God sacrificed his own son God um, used up all of his anger and wrath on Jesus um, so that he didn't have to be angry with us anymore so that's kind of the traditional view and you know it, it works in some ways you can use that to interpret a lot of the Bible um, but the problem with it perhaps is that it gives this image of God as being you know, God being God and God being Jesus being two different kinds of God because if Jesus is the one dying on the cross not angry saying Father forgive them but God is also God killing him because he's really angry there's, there's a dichotomy there um, which kind of suggests that God is somehow like dual, dual aspect or two, two-faced, <laughs> to put it in a kind of more colloquial sense. Um, so you know, and there's theories that explain that, and I'm not saying it's wrong to believe that. I'm just um, trying to summarise it very, very briefly. There are whole encyclopedias on the subject, so I'm not going to do it justice. But an alternative view is that God actually never had an intrinsic problem with sin or our sin that when we did things wrong that it's much more like a parent-child relationship that if your child messes up you're not angry with them to the point that you want to destroy them or you know reduce their existence to blot it out in history you know you might be annoyed by things that they do but fundamentally you still love them you know you'd, you'd like them to stop making those mistakes potentially but um, but generally speaking, you're there to try and pick them up, dust them off, set them right, and get them to not make those mistakes again. But even if they make that mistake a thousand times, you're still going to love them, and that's not going to change. So that's the kind of fundamental starting point of an alternative view. Um, so he never had a problem with sin. We had a problem with sin. Um, we believed that our sin was separating us from God, and the whole history of sacrificial culture is effectively things that we thought we thought we needed to do to satisfy God but throughout scriptural history God is saying I don't need sacrifice you know that's not what pleases me um, and Jesus dying on the cross was the ultimate way of him saying I don't need sacrifice so much so that I'm going to die and as I'm dying as you're killing me I'm going to say forgive I'm going to say, Father, forgive them. So at, at our worst possible position, when we were at our worst, murdering God, he is still saying, I forgive you. Um, and that's his way of saying, I don't have a problem with your sin, and I never have had a problem with it. Um, he doesn't want us to sin because it causes us all pain when we do, and that whole system of sin and you know wrongdoing and transgression, whatever you want to call it, does create a lot of suffering it creates hell on earth and so you know god doesn't want that for us just like any loving father wouldn't want it for their children um but it doesn't mean it's not this situation of like he cannot abide it he can't look at us he you know we can't be in his presence that that is kind of a myth that jesus came to dispel by dying on the cross so um i'll just leave that with you <laughs> um the point of saying that is if you take the other view 
it's okay to identify as a sinner, as someone who's messed up and keeps messing up, because it's no longer this massive thing about your identity. It's something that we know that God is aware of, and he's okay with it, just like a normal father-child relationship. Um, When we fail, it's important that we do something with that failure, not just ignore it or pretend it didn't happen, but actually we are free to go to God with it and say, I've messed up again, Um, and you know, help me with this, rather than kind of pretending that it doesn't exist. Um, so, the prayer again, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Contemplation. So, th- this is the, <laughs> the Jesus prayer was at the heart of the Desert Father's form of contemplation. Um, so, it's not a recommendation necessarily, but it might be something that we consider looking at ourselves when we when we do contemplation which we all do i'm sure um so lizzie's taken us through um a few great sessions on the actual practice of contemplation um silence stillness candles chilled out music sitting with your legs folded whatever you want to do um and i'm not going to go through all the practical stuff again but what i want to do today is kind of encourage us or maybe even exhort us um, to see this as more than just a kind of optional extra in our Christian practice. And that's, um, it's not an easy thing to talk about in that way because I think we have a very postmodern approach to faith that's kind of like, you know, you take the bits that you like and we're all kind of very free and easy. Um, and I'm not saying that if you don't do this, you go to hell. Um, but I just want to try and say as strongly as possible without judging anyone because I'm terrible at it as well so I'm not saying this you all need to do this because this is the only way to be as good as me (laughs) not at all I do not practice contemplation with any regularity Um, the best I get is I do yoga on a Monday night and there's two five minute sessions at the beginning the end of that where I would say it's contemplation Um, that's it so once a week that's all I get probably with any regularity but I think it's really important. And so I, I want to encourage us to look at it more seriously. Um, because it's very easy just to kind of let these new ideas pass us by because there's so many new ideas in life. Um, so to do that, I'm going to start with a whole load of scriptures. Um, and I'm going to touch on these very quickly to just to try and build a, a bit of a picture. So the first one is Genesis 1. If you've got Bibles or digital Bibles, or if you've memorised the scriptures, you can just go there in your mind. Um, I will also read it out, so you can just listen to me. Um, so Genesis 1, 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And we're probably familiar with how the story continues after that. But I just want to look at this starting point briefly. So the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. So is this picture of emptiness, void, silence, nothingness, darkness. And in that space, God is there, and God speaks, and God creates. And... A conclusion I'm going to draw from that is that in that space, in that void, in that nothingness, God is able to speak. God creates. Not just that he's unable in any other situation, but 
that is where we first see the spirit of God moving in space, in void, in silence. And contemplation is about making that space in our lives for God to be able to speak and create and to move, rather than us directing the path of how we want God to speak to us, rather than us you know, praying certain prayers and asking for certain things. It's just about saying, I'm just laying my agenda down. I choose to know nothing for a few moments. I choose to understand nothing and I say, God, this is space for you to move and to speak and to create. Uh, so, uh, and then we're going to go to Matthew chapter 4. We'll be doing a lot of jumping around, so keep your fingers in your Bible. So in Matthew 4, um, this is just following um, Jesus being baptised by John the Baptist. Um, and you probably know that part of the story. So he goes to John and John says, I'm not worthy to untie your sandals. And Jesus says, yeah, but still, can you baptise me, please? And then John does. And then God speaks audibly from heaven. This is the, the way the story is written and says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. So that's quite a big deal. You know, Jesus has just been baptised and has been publicly, audibly, by God, affirmed in front of people. Um, and immediately after that, it says this in, John, in, John, in Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. So we've heard a lot about these temptations in the desert and how this whole thing of bread and uh, being tempted to be master over all people by the devil, they're all actually kind of versions of the same thing because being able to control bread is being able to control people as well. It's like the economy of that time. But... That, that really connects back to what's just happened to Jesus. Jesus has just been baptised and had this like audible affirmation by the voice of God. If you, if you put that in a modern context, he'd now be planning his interview tour, he'd be negotiating film rights, you know, maybe writing a book. Um, it's a big deal. You know, he's made it. Like, this is it for Jesus. But he does the opposite. Rather than make the most of this situation well, make the most of it in what we would typically consider to be the most of it. He does the opposite. He withdraws, he fasts, he prays. He goes to a place where he knows that he's fully dependent on God and not on any of his own achievements or abilities or affirmations. There's no distractions there. There's no agenda. It's just him and his father. It's, again, creating this space where God can speak and God can create. And it's in that space that he's able to resist those like most extreme temptations. Um, so we go to Matthew 6 next verse 6 and this is a really short one Um, this is Jesus Jesus talking about prayer and how we should do it and he says in 6 verse 6 when you pray go into your room and when you have shut your door pray to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly so This is probably the closest thing, I think, that we have to Jesus advocating contemplation, although it's still not quite specific enough, I think, to really argue it. But, you know, this idea of going somewhere secret, of prayer being um, about withdrawal, this type of prayer being about withdrawal and intimacy and quietness. Um, 
all of those things are features of contemplation. There's kind of a sense of humility about it. And then he f- follows that with the Lord's Prayer, which we've also heard Sai talk about. Um, the Lord's Prayer also features in the Gospel of Luke, um, and obviously it includes words, um, so it's not just silence. Um, but the words are simple and rhythmic, and I think they're, you know, there's a similarity between them and the Jesus Prayer. And I think that that really that can work with contemplation. The idea of this kind of simple rhythm of something that's kind of preset um, to, to have running through your mind, if you want to do it that way. Um, another scripture, Matthew 14, verse 13. So this is following the beheading of John the Baptist. Um, so if you know that story... Uh, Herod has thrown a party and his new wife's daughter come and dances for him um, and he likes it. I don't know if there's something weird going on there but um, he says to her that he'll give her half his kingdom um, up to half his kingdom and she chooses instead to have John the Baptist's head on a platter, which is a little bit weird Um, and Herod does it because you know he said you could have up to half my kingdom. So John is executed and then Jesus hears about it and it says this in verse 13 when Jesus heard it he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself but when the multitudes heard it they followed him on foot from the cities and when Jesus went out he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick and then it goes on and there's the whole story of feeding the 5,000 and then in verse 23 And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. So you've got this kind of, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 bookended by Jesus withdrawing himself to pray. And the feeding of the 5,000 is effectively an interruption to that. Um, So John the Baptist was obviously dear to Jesus. John had been the one that had baptised Jesus. um, And he'd kind of prepared the way for Jesus. Luke's Gospel suggests that they were cousins although some people debate that um, but it's very clear that John's death affects him um, you know he's grieving he is, he is human in that sense and um, so he withdraws to spend time alone but he's followed out there he heals them feeds 5,000 men and families and then afterwards go back goes back to that withdrawal so he doesn't kind of forget where he was at yeah. He, he knows that whole time he needs this. He needs yeah. this time out to go and, I don't know what you call it, recharge, recuperate, just be with his father. Um, so there's two things like I want to draw out of that. One is that this is a really positive response to grief or in, intense emotion, not to just ignore it. Um, you know, the kind of the gung-ho macho thing to do would be to just, you know, you're on a mission, you get on with it. Yes, it's a bit sad that John's died, but that's all part of the plan, isn't it? You know, we press, a, press ahead. Um, but Jesus doesn't do that. You know, he recognises what he is feeling and gives time to it, to allow, you know, allows time to process that. Um, also, there's a clear kind of pattern that we're establishing here, or lifestyle with Jesus, of this, you know, whenever, this, whenever something intense happens, it can be intensely positive or intensely negative, what it produces in him is a response to withdraw and recenter and ground himself. And 
as a result of that, you know, he is full of exceptional grace because he's in the middle of trying to do that and all these people follow him. And you would expect, again, a normal person to be like, go away, just give me some time here. You know, I've come here to be by myself. But he doesn't do that at all. You know, he just has grace for them. He heals them, does a few miracles while he's at it. No problem. And he's able to do that, I would argue, for many reasons. But part of it is this lifestyle of continual withdrawal and recentering on God. Um, another scripture, Luke 5. This is uh, verse 16. So here Jesus has just healed a leper and uh, he tells him, as he does to a lot of people, not to tell anyone. And then it says, however, in verse 15, uh, the report went around concerning him all the more. So he's told him not to tell anyone and still it's getting out there. Um, And great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. So Again, you know, in, in response to this kind of intense reaction to Jesus being pretty awesome, um, first of all, he's telling them not to do that because it's not what he wants. So that's one aspect of it. But then when it's still happening, which is kind of inevitable, it says he often withdrew into the wilderness. That, that word often is in italics, which I think means it's, in my, in my version, um, that it might not be found in all of the original texts. Um, even if often isn't there, it's still saying, so he himself withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. And we're getting that picture again, that repeating pattern of him withdrawing. Um, Two more quick examples. In Luke 6, verse 12, it says, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. In Mark 1, 32, it says, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Now, possibly they are the same event, just told in slightly different ways in the two different Gospels. Um, but the point is that Jesus clearly saw this as something that was essential to his lifestyle. Um, Jesus, who was God, let us not forget that, found it essential he could not function properly without these retreats, these points of connection with his father. And if it was essential to Jesus, then it is definitely essential to us. So I think we can see that it's important, but being very strictly critical, there's nothing specific in any of those verses that says Jesus withdrew and did some contemplation. Um, It doesn't say that he lit a candle, put on his favourite chill music, sat with his legs crossed, did some oms or anything like that. Um, So how do I get from Jesus' prayer life to contemplation? Well, it becomes more tenuous, I suppose. Um, But that's fine, um, because even if you can't prove that Jesus went and did contemplation and all you take away from this is the regularity of prayer, that's good. (laughs) You know, the point is it's going to connect with the father um so so aspects of the type of prayer that he did though even if it was or wasn't contemplation is that it was it was regular um and it was central to his life and to his ministry this wasn't just something that he did every now and then um and we are called to be imitators of him and you know i have times periods of frustration in my life of wondering you know what 
what is God using me for? You know, why isn't anything amazing happening? Why can't I heal people or whatever it is? But I think we, we really put the cart before the horse with that sort of thing because it's like, well, you know, Jesus just didn't just do that from nothing. You know, his lifestyle was grounded in time with his father. Um, so why would we expect anything different? Um, the second thing is that the times where it's recorded, it's recorded as a reaction to intense circumstances. <laughs> Hello. Um, so intensely bad or intensely good. Whenever it's like an extreme of emotion, he uses this to he uses prayer. He withdraws to reground himself, to recenter himself, um, so that he's not just carried away by those extremes. Sorry. Um, the third thing is that um, it is regularly recorded that when he does it, he withdraws to places of dependence on God, solitude, and sensory reduction. So, like, he's not surrounded by the noise, the hustle and bustle of life. And also, it, it does include fasting sometimes. Um, so that's also that's part of sensory reduction when you're not eating, you're not consuming. Um, so I would add those three things to this type of prayer, even if we don't want to call it contemplation. They're important aspects of the way Jesus prayed. Um, I still think that contemplation is an important version of prayer in our culture because our lives are filled with um, just a massive volume of distractions and I'm not saying that life was a lot simpler in Jesus's day I'm sure there was still a huge volume of distractions but we live in like the information age and technology and there's just so much stuff that bombards us we you know we're literally assaulted by marketing and things trying to vie for our attention all the time constantly so it could be work money relationships family politics terrorism it could be church um all of these things are trying to distract us um, and for the most part probably succeed in distracting us I think on, on a lot of, for a lot of our lives um, whether we like it or not we are being told all the time what we should think how we should act what we should spend our money on how we should lead our lives you know, we are being told that and if we, if we don't pay attention to that if we don't realise that that is happening to us then there's a real danger that we're just carried along. You know, passivity in that kind of culture isn't, doesn't cut it. You get carried along by the flow. Um, you know, you might not be surfing the wave of it, but you're still getting carried along. You have to swim against the current to not be carried along by that. Um, and I think that that requires something of us. That requires us to, to do something. Um, and that could sound a little bit like I'm suggesting, you know, like revolution or revolt, but there's no point in us protesting or, you know, picketing or trying to swim against the grain in that sense, in this kind of very like, active sense, those, which those kind of pictures uh, connotate, unless we are first whole and grounded, because that is all like intense activity. And as we've just found with Jesus, you know, he didn't do that without first the grounding of spending time with his father. Um, So, uh, with that whole aspect of 
noise and distraction and mental noise and the, the stuff that we deal with on a day-to-day basis and I'm going to finish very shortly with this um, I, I started listing out everything that distracts me um, in a day and it got very long and probably very boring for most of you um, so I've tried to translate it into a shorter version which is kind of a poem so it'll be a bit more interesting to listen to um, but I think a lot of you will identify with a lot of the stuff that happens in the day so this is it 4am Robin cries 4.15 Lizzie sighs 5.45 phone alarm blurry eyed check the information farm Facebook, iMessage, WhatsApp, Gmail, thumbs up, smileys, a discount sale, open, close, reply, delete, red one, red one, red gone, repeat. 6am, Instagram, holidays, food, sunrise, selfies, adverts, memes, is this healthy? One hand on the toothbrush, one hand scrolling, infinite distraction, keeps on rolling. Shower on, phone down, falling water, warmth and white noise, a moment's order. Then dry and dress and more social media, look up some facts on Wikipedia, descending the stairs, one hand still swiping, BMX tricks, celebrity sightings, worlds away, people I'll never meet but they've got my attention, I'm letting them, making them speak, accumulating noise with which my family now competes. For five minutes I gather my things, then I'm out into the street. It's peaceful there at 6.45, and at some times of year, it coincides with a breathtaking, blushing, golden sunrise, this enormous creation to my diminutive size. Car, engine starts, radio 4, Brexit means Brexit, economy, war, roads are filling up with slow, awful drivers, don't they know I need to get to work, I don't care for them either. Tarmac, speed, fumes, lights, aggression, roll on into work in straight succession. To computers and phone calls and liabilities surrounded by people but my job is just to please this is just money so forget what you feel it's a game i'm a machine no room to be real eight hours come as quickly they go no time to breathe deeply no chance to go slow i'm back in the car return deja vu mind full and churning with the day's events stew home kids dinner bath time in their bed then lists arrangements and messages unread 8 p.m exhale sit down And if nothing else is on, then TV. Escape till the evening is gone. And sleep calls its soundless, irresistible siren. Then noise fades away and I'm lost into silence. It's probably a similar story for many of you. Even without kids, I remember it. There's just so many ways to fill our time with noise. It's hard not to. Those accidental moments of silence, I think there was like two in that whole list. are accidental and sometimes they don't happen you know you might be lucky if you get those more than once in a week or a fortnight Um, you can go weeks without noticing creation you know weeks of life spent on this planet without even noticing what it is without considering who i am in it contemplation stillness silence is a choice it's space forced into our crowded lives to allow the creative power of god to flourish it's in a way, choosing to die that we might actually live which all sounds pretty dramatic Um, and as I said, I have to caveat all of that by saying that I'm a complete failure at it Um, but I'm seeing it and I want it and I want it for all of us so the last scripture is Psalm 46, 10 which just says, be still and know that I am God 
contemplation is in its essence the pursuit of stillness and I believe God wants to be known there so I'm just going to finish with a prayer thank you God that you are a big God and you are good thank you that in humility you showed us how to live how to subvert the challenges of life with a lifestyle of consistent prayer help us Lord when we face fears, distractions, anxieties temptations, help us first to recognise them and second to bring them to you in a quiet place and allow you to speak and to create and to heal us Amen Thanks, 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 Thanks,